Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's great to be with you. I thought I'd begin by just showing you a photo of my wife and kids. So uh, here they are. And uh, thank you for that, R. Um, I thought maybe I'd just begin uh, by telling you a funny story. Would that be okay? Yeah. So um, one time I was driving my car uh, through uh, Crawley in West Sussex. And as I'm pulling away from this junction, I can see flashing blue lights in my rearview mirror. I am being pulled over by the police. Now, normally, when this happens, I have to confess this has happened to me a number of times, uh, normally, uh, when this happens, uh, I immediately feel guilty. Uh, because, you see, I already know what it is that I've done wrong. But I have to be honest and say that on this particular occasion, I couldn't think of anything that I had done wrong. So I'm thinking, well, maybe the policeman's just bored, or... Maybe he's seen how well I'm driving. He wants to congratulate me on my driving. So I was feeling pretty confident as I wound down my window. He says, is this your vehicle, sir? I said, yes, as a matter of fact, it is. He said, were you aware that you were indicating for at least 200 yards before you eventually turned right at the previous junction? And I'm thinking, you know, I hadn't realized that early indication was an offense. Anyway, he says, step out of the vehicle, please, sir. I said, why? He said, when was the last time you had an alcoholic drink? And I'm thinking, well, uh, I say, well, um, gosh, that's a good question. When was the last? I said, about, about three months ago. He said, blow into this bag, please, sir. I said, why are you getting me to do a breath test? He said, because your responses to my questions are a bit slow. I said, look, I'm just a slow kind of guy. I'm not the brightest. So anyway, I blow into this breathalyzer thing, and I hand it to him, and he's looking at the result, and I say to him, it's negative, isn't it? He said, yes, sir, it is negative. It must be broken. <laughs> he said, have you been taking drugs, sir? I said, no. He said, cocaine, sir? I said, no. He said, ecstasy, sir? I said, no. And then eventually, he let me go with a stern warning about the perils of early indication before junctions. So anyway, I get back in the car, I drive around, it's only about five minutes away to my friend Steve's house, and Steve introduces me to Julia Brown, who is now my wife. So that evening, I went from one extreme to the other. I went from the hard shoulder to the love of my life. Sometimes there are pleasant surprises. Sometimes there are wonderful discoveries. Yeah, but... Come on, do you seriously believe a dead man came back to life? Well, here's why it matters. Let's imagine for a moment that all of us are living down here. Now let's imagine that there really is a wonderful place called heaven. Now let's imagine that there's a barrier, the barrier of death, in between us and this wonderful place called heaven. Now... We can't break through this barrier. We can't beat death. I mean, we can try and prolong our lives. We could decide, I'm only going to eat vegetables. I'm going to live as long as possible. But we can't beat death. We can't beat death. But what if Jesus did? I mean, what if Jesus did burst through the barrier of death on that first 
Easter, Easter Sunday, so that all those who trust in him follow him through that hole in the barrier into heaven. On that basis, Jesus punched a hole through the barrier of death so that all who trust in him follow him into heaven. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, that would be massive for you and massive for me. It would guarantee your eternal life if you trust in Christ. It would mean that now in 2018, you can be sure that in the future, you really will be in heaven. In fact, you're going to be spending most of your time in heaven. Now, that would bring real peace and real joy into every tough situation that you and I are facing. Now, I don't know what you're going through, but if Christ is risen, that is great news for you and great news for me. It means however tough it is for us right now, there is hope for every single one of us here this morning. Yeah, but come on. Do you seriously believe a dead man came back to life? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Personally, I had my doubts. You see, I was a skeptic. Uh, I didn't go to church. I didn't have any friends who went to church. I did a history degree at university, and there we were taught how to pull apart every source that claimed to be telling the truth. I then became a reporter for the Times newspaper in London, and I then went on to become a BBC radio presenter, and eventually I became a television presenter. And when I was working for the BBC, I was trained to be cynical. I was trained to doubt and disbelieve everything and everyone. So did Jesus really rise from the dead? Dr. Gary Habermas has made a detailed study of every book and every article that credentialed scholars have published on the resurrection since 1975. Habermas is considered to have researched the academic output of all the scholars who are scrutinizing the resurrection more exhaustively than anybody else. He and his colleague, Dr. Michael Lycona, then selected only those facts that the vast majority of scholars, including skeptical ones, accept as historical fact. In other words, they ignored material, including material that's in the New Testament, which was most heavily challenged by skeptical scholars. They chose to work with only those facts which the vast majority of scholars, academics, both Christian and non-Christian, consider to be reliable. And so using this restrained, cautious approach, let us look at just three minimal facts. These are facts which are accepted even by those scholars who oppose the resurrection. Minimal fact number one then, that Jesus was crucified and died as a result. John Dominic Crossan has spent most of his academic life seeking to debunk historic Christianity. But even Crossan admits that Jesus was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. 
James D. Tabor is another high-profile attacker of Christianity. Tabor agrees. He says, we need have no doubt that given Jesus' execution by Roman crucifixion, Jesus was truly dead. More importantly, we have four early non-Christian sources. The Roman historian Tacitus, the Jewish historian Josephus, the Jewish Babylonian Talmud, which is scathingly opposed to Jesus, and the Greek satirist Lucian of Samosata. These are four early non-biblical, non-Christian sources who all say that Jesus was crucified. And we have four more documents dating from 60 AD, which all report Jesus' death on the cross. In date order, they're known as Mark, Luke, Matthew, and John. There are lots of other reasons why modern skeptics are so sure that Jesus died by crucifixion. For starters, these Roman soldiers were a professional crucifixion team. They were experts at executing people. Besides, if a prisoner escaped death, the responsible soldiers might be put to death themselves. So these guys had a massive, a huge incentive to make absolutely sure that Jesus was dead before they ever took his body down from the cross. The Gospels report that they thrust a spear up into his side to make sure he was already dead. We now know that the separated water and blood that came out of that spear wound actually is good medical evidence that Jesus was already dead by that stage. So the survival theory, the theory that Jesus survived a Roman crucifixion, that theory has never really got off the ground. Minimal fact number one, then, is that Jesus was crucified and died as a result. Minimal fact number two, Jesus' tomb was empty. Even an atheist historian will tell you that on the third day, Jesus' tomb was empty. Three days after Jesus' body was buried, it simply wasn't there. Now, why are atheists willing to admit that the tomb was empty? Answer, because historians agree that if the Jews or the Romans had had the dead body of Jesus, then they would have produced it as soon as the first Christians started claiming Jesus is alive. Remember, Jesus of Nazareth had been such a blasphemous threat to the Jews and such a political threat to the Romans that these two groups had conspired together to get Jesus killed. The whole point was to snuff out Jesus and his embryonic movement. The last thing that they wanted was Jesus' disciples persuading people that Jesus is alive. So if they had had his dead body, then as the first Christians started touring Jerusalem, punching the air saying, Christ is risen, Jesus is alive, if the Jews or the Romans had had his dead body, they would have put it on a cart and wheeled it behind the Christians saying, no, no, he's not alive. He's dead. Look, I mean, don't take my word for it. Come and see for yourselves. I mean, here's his dead body. Jesus was, after all, a celebrity. You see, strictly speaking, Christianity should not exist. It should never have got off the ground. The so-called resurrection appearances, they should have been instantly disproved by both the Jews and the Romans who had the dead body of Jesus in a sealed tomb guarded by soldiers. 
but neither the Jews nor the Romans ever did produce his body. That's because they could see that the tomb was empty. So the Jews and the Romans would have produced the body if they'd had it. The reason they didn't was because Jesus had gone missing. The best they could do to explain the empty tomb was to say that Jesus' disciples stole his body while all the guards had fallen asleep, which if nothing else shows they definitely didn't have the body. Let me finish this point, if I may, just with a funny story, an amusing story told to us, my wife Julia and I, by a friend of ours called Angela. Angela lives in a rural village where there's only one bus a day. This is where my wife's parents live. And so Angela is waiting at the bus stop for the daily bus. Yeah? And it's a cold, snowy day. And uh, the bus doesn't come. Maybe it's late. Maybe it's been cancelled. She's getting pretty cold. There's a couple of other women at this bus stop. They're waiting for the bus as well. Just when Angela's about to give up and go home, a car pulls up at the bus stop. There's a woman driving this car. She winds down her window and she calls out, do you want a lift? Angela thinks, oh yeah, <laughs> I really do. I really do want a lift. So she gets into the car. And in fact, the other two ladies at the bus stop, they get into the car as well. So picture the scene. This woman's now driving her car. She's got three women on the back seat. There's Angela in the middle. Lady Angela doesn't know on her right side. Lady Angela doesn't know on her left-hand side. But Angela says, the funny thing is, no one said anything. They drive along in total silence, these four women, for five minutes. Five minutes later, still, no one has said anything. They've been driving along now for 10 minutes in total silence. And then the lady in Angela's right, she starts talking to the driver. It's obvious these two ladies, they already know each other. And then the lady on Angela's left-hand side, she joins in. It's obvious that she also knows the driver and she knows the lady on Angela's right. And that's when the horrible, dawning realization comes to Angela that what must have happened here was that this lady's been driving a car along the road on a snowy day, and as she passes the bus stop, she sees two of her friends. And so she stops, and she winds down her window. She calls out to her two friends, do you want a lift? And as her two friends get into the car, this random <laughs> other person gets into the car as well. But because they were British... And because they hadn't been introduced, nobody said anything. They just drove along in silence. Those women picked up an extra body they didn't expect. The Jews and Romans didn't have the one body they did expect to have. The one they had in a sealed tomb guarded by soldiers. Jesus' tomb was empty. Minimal fact number three. Jesus' disciples believed that he rose, and that he had appeared to them. Okay, now come on, what about these resurrection appearances? I mean, aren't they really just kind of legends which grew up over time? I mean, after all, wasn't it hundreds of years later that these resurrection stories first got written down? Well, rather than hundreds of years later, our earliest record of the resurrection appearances can actually be traced back to within a few months of 
the resurrection. So first of all, writing in 55 AD, the Apostle Paul writes these words. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, this passage presents several problems for anyone suggesting that the resurrection appearances are more legendary than they are historical. So first of all, writing 22 years after the resurrection, Paul reminds the Corinthians that they can test whether the resurrection has any basis in fact or not because the majority of these 500 or so witnesses are still alive and they are willing to be interviewed. And then for a number of technical reasons to do with the actual Greek and Aramaic words in this passage, this passage is thought to contain a much earlier creedal statement. This list, it's likely Paul picked up this list of the resurrection appearances shortly after his own conversion in Damascus, or later when he takes a trip to Jerusalem and he meets up with two leaders of the early Christian church. These blokes are called Peter and James. And this is a trip uh, around 35 AD. He, he describes this trip in quite a lot of detail in one of his other letters called Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 to 19. Now, here's the key point. It turns out that there is a wide agreement amongst scholars from all sorts of different backgrounds, all kinds of different persuasions, that this list of the resurrection appearances of Christ was already well established when Paul collected it as early as 35 AD. This list not only existed that early, but it was a well-established list at that time when Paul collected it in 35 AD. This shows that the resurrection appearances are as old as Christianity itself. This shows the resurrection appearances are definitely not a much later legendary development. So we have got a very early report of Jesus' resurrection. Question, okay, well, what if the resurrection appearances were hallucinations? I mean, people who hallucinate, they think they are seeing something that isn't there. I mean, sometimes imaginary things seem real. Maybe the disciples imagined the resurrection. Well, uh, psychologists study hallucinations. Let's just be clear. For this idea to work, we would have to say that all 550 or so people who saw the resurrected Jesus on 11 different occasions over a period of six weeks were all hallucinating the same thing. That everybody who had meals with him, those who said that they touched him, those who said they'd had long conversations with him, they were all hallucinating. Now here is the problem. When you study these psychology textbooks, we don't know of anything like this. Hallucinations are typically restricted to individuals. 
The group hallucinations required here burst the bounds of anything found in the psychology textbooks. Remember, our earlier source says that over 500 people saw the risen Jesus on one occasion. Now, let's say for the sake of the argument that it is possible for two people to share an identical simultaneous hallucination. That would be two. It wouldn't be 500. Remember, hallucinations are not tangible. They can't be touched. But the resurrected Jesus was tangible. Even so, because there are so few options... Personally, I had expected to find that the hallucination theory would find more supporters, but few have argued for it because of the large number and the variety of identical simultaneous hallucinations required to make the theory plausible. So the hallucination theory seems to be implausible. But there is another alternative. Maybe the disciples just lied. I mean, what if Jesus' disciples did steal his body? Now, you may be amused to know that recently, a lady where we live in West London, um, I just met this woman, and um, she suggested that I should steal something. Yeah? So I've just told this woman um, that we've got four daughters. She said, oh, she said... (laughs) That'll be pricey. I said, pardon? She said, that'll be pricey. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, did you know that the average cost of a wedding in the UK is now 15,000 pounds, she says. She says, factoring in inflation, she said, factoring in inflation, she said, that means you're probably going to have to stump up about 70,000 quid to marry them all off. I said, I haven't got 70,000 quid. She said, well, she said, you're going to have to rob a bank. I said, I can't rob a bank. I'm a Christian. She said, oh, how very inconvenient. (laughs) Maybe the disciples found it inconvenient that their hero Jesus had died. So maybe they turned to a life of crime. Maybe they stole his body, they buried it somewhere, and then they began a rumor that Jesus had risen from the dead. So we're talking now about the world's most successful deception. Okay, let's imagine the disciples did steal Jesus' body. Now, initially, I find this hard to believe because these men were strict Jews. They lived to a very high moral standard. Are we really going to say that these people went all over the world telling people that Jesus had risen from the dead when they knew that it was really a miserable lie? They knew in their hearts that Jesus wasn't risen at all. They knew they'd stolen his body and then they buried it somewhere. The biggest problem with this argument is that the disciples didn't just say that Jesus is risen. They were willing to die for it. Question, hang on, that's not a problem at all. Hey, look, loads of people die for their religious beliefs. That's exactly right. People die for what they believe in, people tend not to die for lies that they know are lies because they made up the lie themselves. Yet the disciples were willing to die for their belief in the resurrection. These disciples were in the unique position of knowing without a doubt whether or not they had hoaxed the resurrection. 
If Peter or James, uh, for example, if they had stolen the body and somehow they'd hoaxed the resurrection appearances, would they have allowed themselves to die for it? Peter was crucified in Rome around 64 AD. We've got nine ancient, non-biblical sources for the martyrdom of Peter. Peter and the other disciples, they could have escaped death. They could have had an easy life, a trouble-free, pain-free life, simply by admitting they'd stolen Jesus' body. Instead, they were willing to be martyred, willing to be crucified for their belief in the resurrection. So our third minimal fact, accepted even by skeptics, accepted even by some of the leading opponents of Christianity today, is that the disciples were not deliberately lying. They genuinely believed that Jesus rose and appeared to them. Okay, we've looked at three minimal facts. Let's imagine our initial goal is that we want to undermine, or at least we want to discredit the resurrection. We need to come up with something. We need an alternative theory. Any attempt to explain away these facts can't leave any of them out. If you were a member of a jury at a trial at the Old Bailey in central London right now, and if the judge had just sent you out into the deliberation room with your 11 colleagues, right now you would be looking for a verdict that fits all the facts. You'd be looking for a verdict that doesn't strain or or minimize the known facts. Right now, you would be looking for the verdict that best fits the facts that aren't in dispute. Folks, the reason why I became convinced that Jesus must have risen from the dead is because The resurrection explanation of these facts outdistances all the other competing hypotheses by such a large margin. The resurrection is the only explanatory theory that can accommodate all the facts. For example, let's imagine we say the resurrection never happened. Okay, fair enough. I used to be a skeptic myself. We've still got to come up with something to account for the explosive arrival of Christianity. Christianity exploded into life with thousands of Jews in Judea suddenly worshipping a man. But no historian would ever have predicted that because first century Jews were strict monotheists. The last thing they wanted to do in life was worship a human being. They thought that was an appalling idea. They thought that that was idolatry. So why did thousands of Jews suddenly commit idolatry by worshipping a crucified carpenter as God? Can I ask you the same question? What would it take you for you to do something tomorrow that right now You think that thing today is disgusting and appalling and repulsive? Well, that's exactly what worshipping a human being was to a first century monotheistic Jew. It was disgusting, it was appalling and repulsive. Yet we know that thousands of Jews in Jerusalem suddenly did it. Tacitus also tells us that there was an immense multitude of Christians in Rome by 64 AD. 
This is only 30 or so years after the crucifixion of Jesus by Pontius Pilate. Why would an immense multitude of people in Rome risk being killed by the Emperor Nero to worship as God, a man who'd suffered the ultimate humiliation in Roman society of being crucified? A crucified man in Roman society was the scum of the earth. Why would an immense multitude of people in Rome risk being killed to worship as God the scum of the earth? Maybe I can ask you the same question humorously. Um, Imagine for a moment with me uh, that you lived on the moon in 33 AD. And as you look down from the moon at the Mediterranean world, you have to bet your life on either the message of 12 fishermen who worship a crucified carpenter, on their message taking over the entire known world within 300 years, or, alternatively, you could bet on the might of the Roman Empire crushing the message of the fishermen within a generation. Okay, who's your money going to be on? You would bet on the might of the Roman Empire crushing the message of the fishermen within a generation. And yet, today, we name our children, Andrew, Peter, and James, and we name our dogs, Caesar and Nero. (laughs) So what are we going to do with these three minimal facts? Hey, let's say I choose the hallucination theory to explain them. Well, even if it's true, it doesn't fit all three minimal facts. Even if I were to reject what professional psychologists tell us about hallucinations, even if I were to say Christianity is based on mass hallucination, I still have to explain the empty tomb. I still have to explain why the authorities didn't produce the body of Jesus. But at the end of the day, somebody might say, okay, I've listened, okay, but I just want you to know it's not for me. I mean, Jesus may be risen for you, but he's not risen for me, okay? Well, in response, I think that we can all agree that if you and I had been there on that first ever Easter Sunday and we had walked together into that tomb, we would either both have seen, yeah, there is a dead human body here that we can see, touch, and feel, and there's you and me, uh, it's a pretty small space, there's a dead human body, or we would have both walked into that same tomb and we would have both said, oh, uh, there is no dead human body here, Uh, there's you and me, there's a pretty small space. Can you honestly say, That as you and I left the tomb together, that one of us could have turned to the other and said, well, it may have been empty for you, but it wasn't empty for me. No. No, because we're talking about a a, a physical, tangible human body here. I'm afraid that history is terribly brutal to relativism. The resurrection isn't just true for Christians. It's either true for everybody because it really happened or it isn't true for anyone because it didn't happen. 
Which brings us lastly to the effect of the resurrection right now. Just to tell you a little bit of my story. When I was a student, I lived in this college where the food wasn't great, but it didn't matter because we knew Alan Blackwood. Alan Blackwood had a car. And Alan Blackwood, every night, would drive us to my kind of pizza. And then we would sit in the back of Alan's car eating pizza. But because we were A, students, and B, blokes, it never occurred to us to empty the used, greasy, dirty pizza boxes out of Alan's car. And so as term progressed, the number of pizza boxes rose. So by about week seven of term, the number of pizza boxes became a problem. And so one famous night when we could not get in to Alan's car because of the number of pizza boxes. 13 years later, at the age of 34, one of my pizza run mates rang me. And he's ringing me to tell me that he has become a Christian. And I ask, how did that happen? He said, well, it began when I realized that I'd done to God what we'd done to Alan's car. I said, what on earth do you mean? He said, I so filled my life with stuff that I crowded God out. Now, we did eventually empty all the pizza boxes out of Alan's car using red bin bags, a bit like this one, actually. But let's imagine that this red bin bag represents not only the rubbish in Alan's car. Let's imagine it also represents the rubbish in my life. Let's imagine it represents all the things that I've thought, said and done, that I wouldn't want you or anybody else to know. I mean, if you knew what I was really like, I'd be gutted. Let's imagine all that stuff's represented by this bag. Okay? These are my sins, if you like. Now, let's also imagine that there really is a wonderful place called heaven. Now, let's just suppose that this white sheet represents Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the Bible claims that Jesus never sinned. And the Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross on that first Good Friday, that what was happening was that he was actually covering over all of my sins, all of your sins, all of the sins of everybody who does put their trust in Christ, that Jesus was actually taking the punishment that was coming to me, the punishment that was coming uh, because of my sins. So he covers it all over, he absorbs all the punishment, and let's see what happens next. This is the barrier of death. As Jesus then, boom, punches a hole through the barrier of death, well, what happened to him just happened to you, if you're in Christ. Just as Jesus is raised from the dead, so also you are raised from the dead. Just as Jesus goes through the barrier of death to be with his Father forever, so also you go through the barrier of death so that you can be with your Father forever. What happens to him happens to you. And this is not a fringe belief. There are more than two billion people living on this planet right now who would say, yeah, Jesus did rise from the dead. Normal, rational people are saying, it's reasonable to say that Jesus rose from the dead. I know I've experienced his love. I know I've experienced his power. I know what a difference he's made to me. 
Because Christ is risen, death is not the end. Because Christ is risen, there is hope. Because Christ is risen, there is life after death. Christ's resurrection is great news for you, and it's great news for me. Hey, Christ came into the world for you and me. Christ died for you and me. And Christ was raised. He rose for you. And he rose for me. I'd like to finish by praying a prayer. And uh, this is a prayer that says three things, really. God, I'm sorry for the wrong things I've done, the things in that red bin bag. Secondly, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross in my place. And then I'm turning to you. And if you like, you could pray this prayer. I'm going to pray it in a moment. After I finish praying this prayer, what will happen then is that all of us will just be leaving a comment on the comment cards. You know, what did I think of this event? How could we do it better next time? What did you like? What didn't you like? We'd be really grateful for your feedback. And while everybody's writing something, leaving a comment, if you want to make this prayer your prayer, you can just tick the box and say, well, yeah, actually, I'd, I'd like to make this prayer my prayer. Okay, so why don't we finish then with a moment of prayer? I'm going to pray this prayer. And you can pray silently along with me if, if you'd like to. Let's pray, shall we? And maybe in the silence this morning, you're praying something like this. Father God, I am sorry for the wrong things I've done, for the times I've put myself first. I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. But thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross in my place as my substitute instead of me. I'm turning to you. You are my Savior and Lord. Amen.